This message comes from NPR sponsor Wix eCommerce, the professional platform that enables entrepreneurs all over the world to create and run their online store and grow their e-commerce business. If you want to sell online, make sure you stand out. Go to Wix eCommerce and create an online store that will grab shoppers' attention. Build a state-of-the-art storefront, showcase your product with striking product pages, and sell subscriptions. Go global and display prices in local currencies. Boost your sales by offering instant coupons using the live chat. Streamline your checkout process with automated shipping fees and sales tax calculation. Manage your inventory and track your sales from one convenient dashboard. Analyze your comprehensive sales and traffic reports. Check out these and more must-have e-commerce features for sellers who mean business. Go to Wix.com slash e-commerce today and join over 700,000 active stores selling worldwide with Wix e-commerce. With the cost of paid ads skyrocketing, now is a better time than ever to hone in on word of mouth marketing for your online brand. Social Snowball is an affiliate marketing platform for Shopify stores that automatically converts all of your customers into affiliates when they purchase and gives them a discount code with their name in it to share it right from the thank you page. Social Snowball also makes sending bank-to-bank commission payouts as quick and easy as two clicks, all within your dashboard. Ditch the manual and outdated affiliate softwares and say hello to an innovative solution designed specifically for the modern DTC brand owner. Start your 14-day free trial by heading to socialsnowball.io or just search Social Snowball in the Shopify app store. This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today we have a great guest with us, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of 4x400, a modern-day holding company that acquires, operates, and grows DTC e-commerce brands. Really excited to have Andrew on the podcast over here. He's going to be talking about all the lessons from the five e-commerce brands that he runs. So that's a lot. Um, You know, most of the people that we talk to over here only run one e-commerce brand. Andrew's uh, the CEO of a company that runs five. So really excited to to dive into this conversation with Andrew. Uh, He's going to be covering a a lot of fun stuff over here. But before we dive in, I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic over to Andrew to give a quick little intro about himself and tell us a little bit more about 4x400 in his own words as well. Yeah, uh, Jay, thanks so much for having me. It's great to um, be talking. And yeah, like you said, I uh, have the privilege of running 4x400. So 4 for 100 originally came out of Common Thread Collective, digital ad agency, digital sales agency, based originally in Southern California, now fully remote. And sort of a couple of years back, we were looking at the landscape and I had become the uh, head of growth and the VP of strategy there and VP of growth. I don't remember what my title was. Anyway, strategy growth, something like that. And we were kind of looking at things going like, well, you know, we had acquired one small brand along the way and we're kind of looking at a second one and and we're actually, you know, we're looking at starting our own brand and and looked at the landscape and thought like, oh, we think we can do this. We think we can run brands ourselves. So I kind of spun off from CTC after spending time at the agency. We went into 4i400 with three brands, one that we 
built from scratch called Opening Day Supply Company. We built it from scratch and then we turned it back into scratch not very long after because it did not go well. Uh, and that helped us to really solidify and realize that we were not brand creators, but like brand growers. We had spent all of our time with other people's ideas, scaling those and thought like, actually, that's what we're really good at. Not necessarily like product people first and foremost and those sorts of things. What we really are is good tactical marketers. And over time, I've tried to become excellent operators beyond tactical marketing. So whether or not we've achieved that is an open question. But uh, we have at some point or another now had seven brands in our portfolio, including Opening Day, which we put out faster. And then the, uh, the other one that's no longer in our portfolio is uh, FC Goods, Dealer's Choice Goods, which was a company that made wallets out of vintage baseball gloves. And uh, that company, we we sold. So um, so that one went a little bit better. It wasn't like a huge exit or anything like that, but we sold it. Yeah. And so now, now we still have five ranging all over the place. Um, we don't we don't acquire any particular niche or anything like that. We acquire across wherever we see opportunity. So yeah, that's who we are. Very cool. Well, yeah, I'm excited to to dive into some of the brands that you guys own and operate. You know, there are a wide variety as well. And, and kind of like you mentioned, you know, you're an expert in the growing side of things and um, growing those businesses as well. But before we jump into all of that fun stuff over there. Can you walk us through a little bit on managing those five brands? Like, what are the brands that you started with? And even like, you know, building that portfolio. I know you mentioned that, you know, you're really not trying to go in deep in one niche. Like, it's really just the brand more so than anything. But I'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about your approach to it in terms of picking brands um, when adding them to this portfolio. Yeah. So in the early days, we just picked brands based on opportunity. You know, I mean, before you have any any success at all in a situation like this, you just kind of take what you can get. And so in the early days, we, the first brand we acquired was Slick Products, which was a really cool brand at the core. Um, but this is back in 2017, but just was but had all kinds of issues with it that it started with. So Slick sells wash products for off-road vehicles, founded by a family that was deep in the dirt bike world, actually. They, they grew up riding dirt bikes in Hawaii on red clay. And they needed a way to wash their bikes without destroying them, like stripping the lubrication and that sort of thing. So they started their own company, created their own formulations, et cetera. And that brand we acquired, it was about 100 grand in revenue. And this year it should do. There's some supply chain problems that are limiting us, but I don't know, somewhere between six and eight million or something. So not like an insane, insane growth chart, but we've kind of ticked that one up along the way. Uh, it's been really good. So there's a lot of people who have made that happen. And it's been really good. So that was one. FC Goods, like I said, we acquired that brand at basically no revenue. It was kind of a hobby brand. The founder was trying to figure out if he wanted to keep it going or not after doing this in his garage. So we took that from basically nothing to a couple million and sold it. And that was across a couple of years. And then opening day, I told you about. So then in March 2019, we added Bamboo Earth, which is our clean skincare company. And that is our other biggest brand right now, still in our portfolio. Slick and Bamboo Earth are the two big ones still there. So Bamboo will do a similar number to what Slick did this year, started at a similar number, um, around 100 grand in revenue, trailing 12 when we got it. And then we have Modern Fuel, which sells um, amazingly engineered pens and pencils. So just like a, a really passionate entrepreneur, product designer, who was an aerospace engineer in the um, British Air Force. And after leaving that, like started doing this as kind of a fun way to create something really cool. Yeah, so that's similar. Brand was around 100 grand when we acquired it. And then we've also got 31 Bits, which uh, was a kind of a, a forerunner in some of the ethical fashion stuff, like really started going, um, they're a jewelry company doing ethical jewelry and really started pushing up initially kind of in the heyday of Tom's when that was a really big story of using business to 
have a positive impact on the world through treating artisans well, often in third world countries. And so that's another company we have, but it had really, it slowed down a lot um, for a lot of reasons. It had slowed down a lot after kind of having a really good heyday a couple of years ago. And then Genuine Canine, which is like really high quality leather, mostly, you know, leather, all leather right now, but not necessarily forever, dog products. So collars and leashes to start, et cetera. So, so that is uh, kind of what our portfolio looks like. There's five brands now ranging still in size from like brands that are on pace to do a few hundred thousand up to, uh, you know, uh, like I said, six or eight million. So, so the one commonality you hear in all of that is that we got all of these brands very small, like around hundred grand in revenue, relatively speaking. And so that ties directly into our investment hypothesis, which is that at that stage, you have some basic validation for product market fit. And that's the part that we can't do. We feel like, you know, the opening day thing for us was this realization, like, that's just not really who we are. What we want to do instead is say, if you've got the basics of product market fit, let's put fire on it or pour gas on the fire. That's what we want to do. Not put fire on it. <laughs> Putting fire on it would be bad. So we want to pour gas on the fire. And so, um, the way we evaluate that is with a couple things. One of them is we look at some of the core fundamentals of the business, like gross margin is a really important thing to us now. And, you know, we're evaluating that, I think, more closely now than we have in the past. And then we want to see basic product market fit as defined for me by revenue per click, which is a very context dependent metric. But you can usually use that as a way to figure out like the quality of traffic. Like if somebody shows up to this website, do they buy? And there's some other factors in there as well. Like there's some founder story that we're interested in, some founder magic in there that we we think can matter and and some other stuff. But there's a couple of the big ones there. Supply chain complexity, how many, how many SKUs there are to manage? Like you said, we have five brands, so we don't want giant SKU sets that are like a huge amount of management or anything like that. That's a pain for for us. We're we're constantly trying to spread resources across a lot of different places. So distributing the OPEX is definitely one of our hypotheses that we think we can do. And I'll tell you what, like, like we are not magicians. Like there's been real problems, you know, like a lot of brands, we had a lot of success last year in terms of seeing some real good forward movement with COVID, brands taking real steps forward. We also saw this year, we're seeing massive supply chain slowdowns in some places and CPMs rebounding from being way down to way back up and Facebook iOS problems. And we're hurting in a lot of ways right now. And and uh, it's really easy to come on a podcast like this and tell you about how great we're doing. But like, it would just be a lie to tell you that everything is going great all the time. Um, we have all kinds of things that we're working out just like you do in your business, whoever is listening. And it's it's not smooth sailing all the time. So yeah, there's big successes and then challenges and everything in between. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into a lot of those over there in further detail. You know, I'd love to unpack a little bit more on the, the selection process or I, I don't know if selection process is the right word, but how you kind of pick your brands. I know you mentioned that one of the things that you're looking for is product market fit. What are some of those other like big characteristics that you're looking for? And I'd be kind of curious also as well, if you ever work with some of these brands, obviously it's, I'm sure it's dependent for each different situation. Each company's got its own story and history and, and things like that. But I'm curious whether you're like, okay, like we see like there might be a chance to to get there and and we can work with either the the owner or once we acquire the brand to kind of get there. Uh, I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about that as well. Sure. So the product market fit question is a good one. What I'll say about the acquisition process is that it's really the same as any brokered deal for brands for us, which is sort of like the baseline that you start with is trailing 12 months EBITDA and that creates a baseline evaluation and a multiple. And that multiple gets adjusted by a whole bunch of factors. And this is true on the buy side and on the sell side for a business. So, 
And increasingly, it's not even EBITDA, it's free cash flow. So the point is that we would look at it and say like, okay, for example, if a brand has $100,000 in EBITDA, but they have awesome gross margins, they're doing that across a few sales channels. Uh, I mean, actually, a multiple mix of sales channels in some ways would be almost a problem at that level because that would be pretty small to be sort of distributing your your efforts across a lot of different things. But anyway, diverse traffic channels, if you've got that, if you've got, especially at the small scale that we're looking at, it's even more stuff that's sort of more core to the business than, than sales and traffic channels because we think we can supply a lot of that. But it would be like gross margin. So like if you have a really high gross margin, that's a cheat code in e-commerce. Like if it's just, if every order I take has more margin built into it for me at the end of the day, then it is better. I mean, this is a basic, basic capital allocation question, right? Like if I can put my money into one place and it spits out a bunch of profit for me, then that's usually a good use of my money. So, and when we look at that question about margin, we look at it sort of, we would just say it's like total cost of delivery, cost of revenue, net landed cost. There's a lot of ways to look at it. So that would include gross margin, like everything from raw materials to finished goods, depending on how we're doing it. We actually produce our own product for our skincare brand. So it's really raw materials at that point is the key. And then we have to produce finished goods. And so if you're buying finished goods, that's different than raws. And then we would look at that and, and, and also talk about packaging costs, weight. A big thing is value to weight ratio for us, which is essentially a way of saying like, how expensive is this to ship relative to how much you can charge for it? So it's a big problem for Slick for us, which is that it's heavy bottles of soap that get shipped all over the place and it's expensive to ship it. So it creates all kinds of margin problems, even though the margin on soap is pretty good on the gross product. So there's that challenge there. Um, and, and so we look at that whole situation and say like, what about this? And what about, what about cost of delivery to the customer? And then we would look at a LTV would be another factor for us that we would evaluate. So we'd look at like our customers coming back once they buy. And because we come from the agency world, we have a lot of context for that information relative to like sort of what's good and what's bad. Uh, because if I can acquire a customer and they're going to come back and buy in the near future, then it really makes it a lot easier because that second purchase is a lot cheaper for me than the first purchase. Uh, and so I can actually put the money into customer acquisition and bank the return of customer revenue. So I would look at a bunch of stuff like that and um, I would bake all of that into my valuation of the brand and then and then decide whether or not to buy it accordingly. So, you know, we're refining that in all kinds of ways still. Um, but those are some like basic things that we would look at. And in that respect, again, we're not really any different than anybody else who's buying and selling businesses. You're, you're taking profit and then adjusting the multiple up or down based on some of these other factors in the business. So does that answer the question? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you covered a lot of great information over there. And talking a little bit more about product market fit, I know we talked about some other categories there, uh, but product market fit, I think, is one of the, the most important ones, obviously. You can't really have a viable business without selling something or, or giving something that someone needs on the other side of those things. So I'd be kind of curious to, to learn as well, like, in terms of product market fit, I'm assuming it's a ever evolving thing as, you know, people's habits change, people's needs change and, and things like that. Um, if you can give us some details over there, if there's anything uh, you and your team are doing on the product market fit side to to constantly continue to to have product market fit or, you know, if you are acquiring or, or looking at any brands that, you know, might not be 100% there yet, but are maybe like 80, 85% there and you feel like it's starting to happen. If there's any strategies or, or things like that, that brands can do to help find and further accelerate finding product market fit. Yeah. So for us, we really want to acquire brands that already have it in our view. Like we think that like that's actually the key and that haven't figured out how to scale it. 
And actually, we've made this mistake with some brands of thinking like, this isn't as good as we would want, but like, we think we can handle this tactically. So, but you know, with better sort of more expert design and more expert advertising and, you know, email flows and those kinds of things that we can squeeze value out of every click. Because what I really mean by product market fit, the way I measure that is um, revenue per click, essentially like how much is a click worth to me? And that is really variable depending on a lot of different contexts. So revenue per click is a breakdown of two metrics. It's conversion rate and AOV. And usually the conversion rate and the average order value hold each other in tension. So as a general rule, and this is almost always true, conversion rate, uh, those two are inversely, have an inverse relationship, right? So as conversion, as, as AOV goes down, conversion rate goes up. That is, if something is cheaper, more people will buy it. And this is sort of obvious that if something is more expensive, there's a longer consideration phase. It's harder to decide whether to buy, et cetera. The thing is, it can be hard to tell if your conversion rate is good relative to your AOV or if your AOV is good relative to your conversion rate. If you don't have like context for that data, it's, it's challenging. And so what the way I measure that really simply is if you multiply your conversion rate by your average order value, the number that it spits out is your revenue per click. That's how much every click is worth to you. And so... For me, like I would look at that and say, depending on the traffic channel that we're looking at, I want to see X revenue per click. Now, here's the thing. Conversion rate is really, really variable depending on all kinds of factors. For example, people convert on desktop much more than they convert on mobile. That's true across every website in the history of the world. doesn't matter how good your mobile experience is. Desktop is pretty much always going to convert better. Women tend to convert more than men. 45-year-old women convert more than 18-year-old women. They have more buying power and so on. And paid cold traffic from paid social converts much less than a search where somebody clicks on your branded paid ad. And that's just a matter of intent coming into it. United States traffic converts better on US websites than international traffic uh, as a general rule. And so all of these elements, you know, if you're getting tons and tons of traffic to blog posts, because you're awesome at SEO, your RPC across your entire website is going to look worse because that traffic is going to convert very poorly. Now, it still might be worth it because it's free, uh, you know, at some point, uh, so to speak. I mean, you have to create the content, but like traffic is free from search. So that's going to drive that down. So you have to look at where your traffic is coming from to have a baseline number. So having said all of that, somewhere around a $2 revenue per click tells me at a baseline level that there's across the board adjusting for all the context involved will tell me that a, a brand has some basic product market fit. Now, what I'll say is I have at times made the mistake of thinking that like, oh, we're not converting enough relative to our AOV because maybe like the website design isn't good enough, you know, or something like that, or because like the offers aren't quite right or whatever. And what I am finding is that like, I mean, maybe better marketers than me, uh, better tacticians than me can do great job. I'm sure there are people who are better at this than I am who can like, just go kind of solve those problems in tactical ways. I've found that to be very hard. That essentially, like, there's some stuff that is core to the business and to the product that we typically think of in the terms of product market fit that are like really, really hard to get past. And I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a really great brand and CRO agency. They do kind of both full brand work and redesigns as well as like conversion rate optimization for brands. And what he said to me is like, look, what I've learned doing this is that our CRO people can often get single to double digit increases in value uh, as a percentage for our clients. And that, that I mean, that matters, right? If I can raise my conversion rate 10% on the same traffic, that is tremendously valuable for my business. So that's great. Put the money into it. Go do a great job there. But though that's the case, he said, like, for people to get real step function growth, it normally means serious brand and product work. So my long, long, long winded answer to your question, and Jay, what you've learned about inviting me to your podcast is that I have a lot of those uh, long winded answers, is that most times 
if your product market fit isn't working, like if you just cannot scale at the level you want because traffic is not worth enough to you, you have a more core problem than you often think. It is tempting to go try to solve this problem with design and copy and da da da, but actually most times tweaks will not accomplish it. And what you actually have to do is think more about some baseline stuff like what's the product I'm offering? What's the price I'm offering at? You know, et cetera. Like, is this actually something people want? in these really big ways. So it's core to the offer and to the product uh, more than anything else. And th there are ways to adjust that and to try to change relative to that. But, you know, like our jewelry brand, 31 Bits, for example, this was like a huge problem for us. And we continue to just kind of bang our heads against the wall going like, it is good quality jewelry. It is work like it is beautiful. People get it and they like it. And it is really ethically made and the margin is good and all these things. But for some reason, we just can't make a click work worth enough, no matter how much redesign, no matter how much offer change we do. And I look at it at the end of the day and say something is wrong at a more fundamental level here. That's really helpful over there in terms of a, of a good framework to look at. And it totally makes sense thinking about it, that it is about the product and what you're offering, because ultimately, especially in e-commerce, you know, that's what the end consumer gets to use. If you can have the best marketing, the best design and, you know, the best people that are promoting the product. But if the product does not work for you, uh, you're probably going to be less likely to come back. And that that totally makes sense there. Well, what I'd say about that is like, actually, if you have the best marketing, I think that's probably wrong. Like, I think if you're actually the best at marketing, you probably can market a bad product pretty well. The problem is that most of us are not actually the best. We're like, might be pretty good. And we should just be realistic about that. But like, there, there are extreme outlier cases, but I'm not the best marketer in the world. I'm just not. And therefore, like, I would not trust myself to take a product that's like pretty good, but struggling or like, bad, but struggling and like suddenly turn it into very, very good. Like the best market in the world probably can do that, but I'm, I'm not that person. And that's just the reality of it. And so I don't mean that. I mean, I think we do really good work at 4 over 100. I'm, I'm proud of what we do. I like our brand. Like I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to be overly negative here. I just mean like, you know, the extreme outlier skill sets there are, are not what most of us have. And um, that's what makes them extreme outliers, right? That's what makes it the best is that like what we're saying is on the bell curve. You're the farthest to the right. And I know, by the way, you're just kind of using a throwaway term there, like I, I'm not holding you to that. But I think that the way to think about this is that it's actually really hard. And like <laughs> what Taylor Holiday, the um, managing partner of both 404 and Common Thread Collective tells everybody is don't go start a brand holding company. It looks really easy on the outside, but it's actually insanely difficult because there's all these problems that come up. And I relate to that. Like, it's not easy. And lots of times we fail. And and so, yeah, so maybe if if you're listening to this and you are the best marketer in the world and you want a job, let me know. I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. Uh, let's talk a little bit too. I know you know you have the five brands that you manage, and they are in very different categories for some of them. So, can you kind of share with us what have some of your key learnings been? Um, you know, especially like what are some of the differences you see in managing different types of brands, and then what are those things that are just basically common across all brands in managing them? Yeah. 
Okay, so I'll say a couple things here. The first is that actually on my podcast, e-commerce playbook, Taylor Holiday and I recently recorded an episode where we kind of talked through what Taylor calls his anti-fragile playbook. And the idea is not an original one, the idea of being anti-fragile, but the notion is just like what makes a brand do well under pressure and how could you sort of reverse engineer that? And so there are core things to these businesses that, I mean, we're still learning how to do this well, but there's stuff like, for example, like your cash conversion cycle relative to your deal terms. Like if you can turn product into dollars fast, instead of having to outlay huge portions of inventory with cash, it makes your whole business better. And, and, uh, and so that's a matter of like working out your deal terms and your delivery timelines. For example, like, like we are running into huge problems right now for our brand Slick, uh, Slick Products, because you know, we have this product that's really core to our business that comes from China that's super delayed on the supply chain. It was already a product that required quite a bit of cash to outlay. And the delivery timeline was really long. So it's a, it's a really hard project to manage because it re- for you to keep it in stock without just throwing tons and tons and tons of cash at it, it requires you to project perfectly. Well, these are relatively early stage businesses and startups growing fast. It's impossible to project perfectly. Like you just can't do it. And, and for anybody who doesn't believe me there, I just, I would love to see your 2020 projections, right? The whole world before they happened, right? Like, like everything can change so fast because of whether it's a global pandemic or just something happens crazy in your business that it's, it's really, really hard to stay out in front of that. So for example, so delivery timelines being short can make a huge difference to having a better business because this happens all the time too. You're running an ad and suddenly you have an ad pop-off. Customer sends you a piece of UGC about one of your products. You were barely even advertising that product before, but man, she just loves it. She gives you the most authentic endorsement ever. You throw it on your ad account and what happens? Like you just massive click through purchases and suddenly everything's changing. Well, if that wasn't a product for which you had stocked and prepped inventory for ahead of time, then it's great that you have an ad that's really effective, but you have to sit on that ad and not scale it if you can't supply it, if you can't produce the inventory in time. So short inventory timelines are really helpful. Payment terms are really helpful. Um, There's a bunch of these that we talked through. I think we had seven of them. And we're just kind of starting to look at our businesses this way across the board and and see all these things. Gross margin is definitely a big part of it. That's one we would put in its own bucket. So those are the core things. LTV, these are the core things that really drive value in a business because they make the business easier to manage. They're all cheat codes. Just walk back even just those four that I just said. If you have a product with lots of margin that's um, very high in LTV, you can produce it quickly and you have great payment terms on it. That's a really good business, which is why everybody and their mom is starting a skincare company right now, because that pretty much fits all of those in a lot of cases. And it's not because everybody loves skincare. It's because skincare is a great business. And now it's incredibly competitive and that creates a different problem. So there you go. But those are the kind of things that we would look at and say, like, that's that's the stuff we learn across the board. At the marketing level, what I would say is there's some stuff that we are starting to that I think think is true across the board. One of them is that clear wins most times over clever, particularly for like driving cold traffic. So I'm thinking Facebook ads here, like most times there's a baseline of value and performance set on your advertising just by being really clear about what you're offering the customer and making it obvious to them. You know, every purchase is just an exchange of value. I have 10 bucks. I think your product is worth 10 or more dollars. So I'm willing to exchange my $10 for your $10 or more worth of value in product form. So what you need to do as a marketer, and this is what great marketers are really, really good at, is layer value on top of your product so that like everybody can who is trying to buy from you sees that your product is worth more than $10 uh, to them in that case, right? And so you're trying to communicate that value. 
The clearer you can do that, the more clearly you can do that, the better you typically can do. It's not easy. It's not easy at all to do that. But trying to make it clear, as clear as possible, what makes it good, um, you know, also while being at an angle that makes sense for the customer. There you go. So yeah, so that is something we would say. Um, Facebook ads is still the best driver of customer acquisition in the world, even with all the problems right now. That's something we see consistently across the board. There's some other stuff too that we see as, as being true. Get your automation set up. That's just free money, relatively speaking. So that you know, if you have good, strong automations around abandoned checkout, abandoned cart, all that kind of basic stuff, SMS if you can, um, all that stuff matters too. But those are some of the things that come to mind. Uh, if you want to hear more about those anti-fragile checklist things, just go check that out. Like I said, I actually don't remember what the episode is called, but if you scroll e-commerce playbook podcast, you'll find one that's me and Taylor Holiday talking about the anti-fragile playbook. Yeah, those are some awesome tips over there. And thanks for diving into all of that over here. Uh, you know, as we kind of come to the end of the podcast over here, I, I kind of wanted to ask one last question over here on my end. So, you know, especially we've talked a little bit about, you know, what are some of those commonalities and, and things like that, that you look at brands so let's talk a little bit, uh, not only on the the what kind of exists, but let's talk about the the growth piece for a second as well. You know, there's a pretty consistent checklist I think for for getting brands up in terms of you know you need a website, you obviously need products, you need to find a supplier, all of those good things. But it kind of starts to get a little bit different as you as you scale and grow your brand. I'd be curious to kind of learn from you. Uh, and I know you talked about testing some different things earlier in the episode. What are some more of those things that that you are constantly like testing and working on as you're scaling brands to try and continue to, to push the needle? Like what are the top three, I guess, biggest things that, that can really help to scale there? All right, I'll start talking. You tell me if we did three or not. So... <laughs> We're always testing our ads. So just like regularly trying new creative all the time. And that includes new landers. And one of the things I'll always tell anyone is that in order of value that you should test your offer first, by which I mean the combination of product and price. Like we see this all the time. People will have an ad account. Let's say you have 10 SKUs even. For some reason, they will only advertise four of their SKUs. But actually, if I bundle three of them differently or take one of the SKUs that I'm not offering or whatever... Try to sell other products in your in your selection. It will create different outcomes with different kinds of customers. Um, we experienced this in a big way with Slick, where for a long time, it was all these kits that we were doing. And at some point, we said, people actually love this shine, this aerosol spray that shines up their vehicles. Like, So let's try and do some stuff just on the shine. And bam, it opened up 40% more spend for us overnight or something like that, where it was just profitable dollars that we just hadn't put into it. And so then we're looking at other products going, why don't we do this more? So think about your offer. Think about how you position your product in that respect. Um, try bundling stuff. Try doing a three-tiered offer where you're landing, you create a landing page, even if it's simple, where it's like, hey, if you buy one of them, it's full price. You buy two of them, it's it's 10% off. You buy three of them, it's 20% off. Good, better, best, classic kind of scenario there. Like play with that kind of stuff because the more you can test your offer, the better. Once you have a baseline level that you can validate your quality of quality of traffic with your clicks by you know that this is like people clicking on your product and an ad that's relatively clear, the click price is reasonable. And that can actually range quite a bit these days. But, uh, you know, you do all those things like then test your offer a lot. Then from there, test your creative. And so that's the kind of second element of that. Start testing creative iteratively from within that. So that's one thing that I think is really crucial. We're always testing that. We're testing some other stuff right now in a lot of ways. One of them is playing a lot with some SMS ideas. I heard this idea from the folks at Club Early Bird. It's like a wake up drink, like a 
caffeine. I don't know. Coffee substitute, as far as I can tell. I'm not sure. They, I don't know them. So I'm sorry if I just poorly represented their brand. But they have a thing that they call Get Shit Done Tuesdays, which is um, their like text, their SMS VIP club. And and you get a sort of a text message every Tuesday. You sign up for it. And it's just like a motivational text or like why you should, I don't know, work harder or perform better. Kind of fits the brand of like wake up with energy. So they do that. And on the bottom of it, they just throw a little subscription link that's just like, go be a VIP subscriber. They don't say go subscribe. It just says VIP subscriptions. Boom. So there's it's a very soft sell, but they get to your phone every week. The unsubscribe rate stays low. They're just there all the time. Um, we're playing with some ideas like that. Like what happens if we do just value add content for people via SMS consistently with a simple link into some kind of a... Um, subscription if if the brand has that or into like a VIP offer club. Like one idea we've had is for Modern Fuel, our pen and pencil brand. Like, uh, you know, these are like $200 pens. They're really amazing, beautiful, incredibly well-crafted things. And, you know, pure titanium, et cetera. And so we've played with this idea of like, what if every two weeks we sent you something from Modern Fuel that was some kind of inspirational content? And then that was also your pathway to getting into a VIP club where every two weeks we change the offer to a gated website where it's like the only way to get in here is by being on our text list. And then you'll get, okay, we're going to offer you this thing for 20% off. We're going to do a collab with these friends of ours and you get both of our products for this much. And so it's just sort of like plays on the urgency and all of that mixed with that kind of content. So um, that's something we're playing with a lot right now. And then the other thing we're doing a lot of is I'm really interested in a really broad range of other customer acquisition stuff right now beyond Facebook and Google, where Facebook and Google are table stakes and you just kind of have to get good at those. They're expensive. They require time and money to test. If you don't have lots of money to play with, I would be careful with Facebook. It can suck up a lot of money and time really fast. But if you do, it can be really good. Um, it can also produce a lot of profit fast. So I don't know. It's case by case on that. But anyway, I'm just playing with all kinds of things right now in terms of affiliate in a lot of different ways, influencer in a lot of different ways, just doing lots of influencer seeding as much as we can. Our process is not very good there yet, but we're working on that. Really pushing on Amazon a lot harder. Like just there's all of these different elements of kind of different customer acquisition channels that we're going like, let's go. Let's get there and see what happens and see if we can make it happen. And I happen to have an awesome teammate who can just own stuff like that, get it built, go for it and go simple wholesale, all kinds of stuff like that. So um, those are a few of the things that we're testing right now. It's always tempting to go in too many directions at once. You always have to be okay with the fact that resources are limited for almost all of us. It's the kind of people who are listening to a podcast like this. I'm sure this is true. You don't have time to try everything. And so you're going to just have to leave somewhere. Somebody is making a ton of money on TikTok. It's not me. Like I just am not doing it right now. And that's because you have to say no to one thing to say yes to another. And so and I totally could be wrong about whether or not we're saying no or yes to the right thing, but um, that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and thanks for diving in over there. I think those are a lot of great actionable tips for all the listeners that we've had over here. Andrew, I know we're coming right to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was really insightful. I know I learned a lot. I'm, I'm sure the audience did as well. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And before we go ahead and sign off, I'll pass the mic to you one last time if you want to share a little bit more about where people can learn what you're doing at 4x400 and uh, potentially connect with you as well and, and just learn more. Yeah, well, you can go to 4x400.com, 4x400.com. You can get to all of our brands that way. Go buy some stuff. That's always the best way to support us. But um, it's all good too, actually. Like I really stand behind all of our products. But the uh, the places to kind of stay up with any of our story, we try, we're trying to build in public as much as we can. I try to be pretty straightforward and honest about 
where we're winning and where we're losing and what our real numbers are. Um, I'm sure there's some reason I shouldn't do that, but I can't think of what it is. So <laughs> like, I know people are always so like slow to say this is how much we're doing and whatever. And I don't, I can't figure out why, but maybe there's a reason. Anyway, the best place actually is Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris, F-A-R-I-S. And I would love to interact with you there. You can also check out the e-commerce playbook podcast. I think the Apple music link or iTunes link or whatever is in my Twitter bio, but um, get there wherever fine podcasts are sold. And yeah, so that I, every week is just normally just me just kind of telling you what's actually happening in real time, all the ups and downs. The guy who told me to go do that from our team was like, Hey, I want you to bleed. Like, so just make it raw. And I was like, all right, thanks. That sounds fun. <laughs> but that's what I try and do. Just try to be as honest as possible. So yeah. So anyway, so those are the, probably the best places to do that. 4f100.com, at Andrew J. Ferris on Twitter, uh, the e-commerce playbook podcast. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely drop links to all of that in our show notes over here for listeners to check out. So, but Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been a great episode. If you enjoyed this episode with Andrew, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the DTC pod. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Jay.